Well, welcome to Second Chances with Jim McGreevy, and I'm very much honored to have with us uh, a dear friend, uh, a lawyer of national repute, and somebody who fights the good fight on behalf of the people we have the privilege of serving every day, the esteemed Larry Lussberg. Do we have a round of applause? <laughs> Virtual applause from all over. So, Larry, we're going to start in the beginning. Um, where did you grow up? So um, I went to elementary school, um, junior high school and high school in Paramus, New Jersey. Um, my father was a truck driver and then a, um, owned a small trucking company. My mom was initially a first grade teacher. She eventually became a school administrator. Um, they're awesome people. Um, and I had a very happy upbringing with my family, my two younger brothers in Paramus. So why Paramus? How did they find their way to Paramus? Why wasn't so, it Newark? Why wasn't it Perth? Yeah. So, so my parents, so my, my mom was, uh, born and raised in Bergen County. She, you know, was grew up in Bergenfield, New Jersey. My dad, uh, was a Hudson County guy. Originally he was born in Jersey city. Grew up in North Bergen. His uh, the trucking company that he uh, originally worked for and then had was my my grandfather's trucking company, Alco Express Company, stands for Abe Lusberg Company. I always I love it. it. Yeah, this is Abe Lusberg Company Express Company, which has its grammatical problems, as I reminded them on many occasions. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, and, and um, you know they met in summer camp in upstate New York and ended up settling in Bergen County. I actually went to kindergarten and first grade in Dumont, which is right near Bergenfield. And then they moved to Paramus when it was mainly celery farms back in the early 1960s. And why, why, why did they select Paramus? It was just, think, it was think, open space. It was. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were, it was one of those kinds of suburbs that existed in those days, sort of a la Levittown where all yep. the houses were exactly the same. They just clear cut large areas and built by levels and colonials, all of which looked exactly the same as everyone yep. else's. And, um, and I think if I recall correctly, the house I grew up in, which is a big, beautiful house, they bought in 1962 for $28,000. Oh my gosh. I wonder how much their property taxes were back then. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know that. Um, Premise probably wrote them the check. <laughs> it was, you know, it was a fine place. I could walk to school in the morning. Um, you know, I could, it, you know, it was we, we would go out to play after school in that suburban way that people had. Um, it was a very, it was a, it was not a diverse community at all. It was all, um, it was about half Irish Catholic, um, probably a fourth Italian Catholic, and a fourth Jewish, um, but everybody was white. And 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 so, did you in school? Did you did you play any sports? Did you have any particular favorite subjects? Yeah, so um, it's such an interesting thing because in so many ways, I don't remember. I mean, I was always involved in student government. Yeah. Um, I was president of my uh, the student council when I was in sixth grade. I was president of the student council when I was in ninth grade. And I was president of the student council when I was in 12th grade. And each of those times, I got those jobs after not like having worked my way up through other, through other positions. I, I guess I learned early on that you're always better running as an outsider. Um, so I would always run as the reform candidate who's going to, you know, undo the corruption that existed among the other sixth graders, ninth graders. Exactly. Um, and, uh, 
And so, so, so I did student council. Um, I did debate, but I did, so I played sports. I did, I played football, baseball, um, and, you know, and, and tennis. Um, and, and it was, it was a great, it was, it was, you know, it was, but mainly, you know, what we did is we would, at the end of the day, in a way that kids don't do these days, and certainly my own kids didn't do, um, we, we, uh, you know, we'd go out and play. I mean, you've yeah. got to play. I would go down to Petruska Park around the corner. And, and you know, most of the time I got in trouble because I came home after it was dark and my mom yelled at me. After um, the lights, was, yeah, after the was, lights, the street lights were on. It really was. It was just a, it was a very, in some ways, very idyllic. Um, but I can tell you that by the time I was in high school, I was impatient and wanted to get out um, and decided that, you know, I would, would you know, that I had good grades and good SATs that I would go to someplace that was not, in New Jersey, I I was not going to go to Princeton because it was New Jersey. That was it was something exactly you wanted to see different. So, how did you settle on Harvard? Um, I think that I settled on Harvard because of all the schools I applied to, they treated me the worst. So I figured they must be the best. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the old Groucho Marx that I you know you always want to most be a member of a club that won't have you. Exactly. Um, and 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 you know, I I really think there's something to that. I had a, a I had a high school girlfriend whose brother went there. So I went up and stayed with him and, and I had, and I had fun and I went to some classes that were incredibly interesting. And in a lot of ways, I think it was a great choice. And in some ways I think it was a harder choice. Um, Harvard is an, it's an interesting place. I mean, it's, it's a, it's then and now it's a school that sort of does its best to replicate the jungle out there. It's not a nurturing place. It's a place where you get what you grab. Um, and I think it's, it's, I think the model of Harvard is to, is to replicate, as I said, you know, capitalists are capitalist society. If you can succeed there, you can succeed in this dog eat dog world that we live in. Um, other IVs are not that way. My daughter went to Dartmouth where there's no way you could have gotten lost in the shuffle, but at Harvard yeah. you can, it's big and in some ways impersonal. Um, and I had a really incredible experience because I had four really different years with different people that I hung around with. One year was kind of a good old college boy year. One year was a little bit um, more, uh, uh, you know, subversive in a way, you know, just a little bit too much, you know, alcohol and drugs and that kind of thing. And then I took a year off and worked in Washington for what was then the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Health, Education and Welfare doesn't exist anymore, but incredible experience doing desegregation cases, working on the racial effects of tracking in public schools, yeah. that sort of thing. Came back in that year, the people I hung around with were mainly artists. And then in my fourth year, the people I hung around with were maybe mainly involved in various political movements. And so there were these, all these different ways that I was experimenting with who I was going to be. And I think it was all very unsettling in some ways, but sometimes sure. unsettling that is taking you out of your comfort zone makes you realize what's important to you and helps you focus. And um, when I was a junior, the summer after my junior year, I worked for something called the Sloan Commission on Government and Higher Education, which was studying issues in higher education. And I worked for, I, 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 mainly what I did was working for an economist trying to understand you know, how people afford colleges and how, how student aid worked and should work. But in, there was a legal section of that Sloan Commission, and one of the people who was most involved in it was Judge Leon Higginbotham, who was a legendary civil rights lawyer, part of the team in Brown versus Board of Education, eventually a district court judge and chief judge mm. of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. 
um, who I met much later, you know, when I was, uh, when I was, you know, a lawyer. Um, and I became really interested in civil rights work. And I decided, you know, what the heck, I'll apply for law, to law school. So I applied to law school. Um, I submitted my application to Harvard. I um, wasn't really sure I wanted to go to law school, but I got in. So I said, well, maybe I'll go. <laughs> but I took a year off and I had a Fulbright fellowship to go to Sweden um, and lived in Sweden for a year and had a really good time in Scandinavia, but also studied what I thought was different ways that social welfare systems could work. Um, and then went to law school when I came back. And, um, and for me, law school was all about learning to serve poor people. Um, and I spent all my time there uh, at the Harvard Legal well, where, where did you get that impetus? Where did you get that yearning to help those that were on the, on the margin of society? I, I think it's, I, it's a question I've never really been able to answer for myself. Um, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, my, both of my parents are good dem, liberal Democrats, um, but neither of them has ever been like real reformers or civil rights advocates. Um, I mean, if you think about it, um, so I was born in 1956, which means that the civil rights movement and particularly, you know, 1963, 64, 65, are pretty formative years for me between the time I'm seven years old, eight years old, nine years, 1968, you know, I'm 12 years old. Think about that year. And so I think that um, watching that and, 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 and I remember when I went to Washington in 1976 to work for uh, the Office for Civil Rights, I thought, oh, I'm past the era of great civil rights movements. Incredible thing to think about now. But, um, you know, I, I, I just, I think that the notion of fighting for people who were being irrationally discriminated against became something that was just so offensive to me. I mean, I remember Selma. I remember watching, you know, the civil rights struggle and thinking yeah. how completely outrageous it was. Um, and it's funny that you should ask that be, in a way, because this week, you know, when Texas passed a statute that said that it was that it's child abuse for someone to go through um, sex change, you know, trans to, be, to, to go through the trans process. I thought to myself, this is a, we, we really haven't progressed. We're still as a nation enveloped by this irrational bias, prejudice, hatred for no reason based on people's worth their real merit, um, and, you know, so, but I think that that has animated really everything I've done since that time. I mean, just, I think I was, I think I'm truly a child of the civil rights movement, even though like at its height, I was probably eight years old. Oh, it's interesting because it, it's the basis that animates so much of what you do and, and where you put your time and your energy and your dedication. And I didn't know whether or not it was, you know, it was, at some point, it might have been your family values, your religious values, your discourse, somebody at Harvard, a professor. A law. How, how did law school change or alter or deepen Larry's under, commitment to civil rights, but also understanding of how America works in real time and how it should work? Um, so I... To me, um, I quickly came to believe that law is not the academic exercise that many people at a place like Harvard thought it was. I mean, you yeah. could debate for days, you know, what the what what the real origin of the Equal Protection Clause was, sure. or you know, various 
you know, fine points of the law in the way that academics do. But to me, being a lawyer was just about having the incredible opportunity that we lawyers have to make the world a better place. Uh, I mean, let's just think about this. And this is what law school taught me, is that, you know, if you want to change the world in a way that a Governor McGreevy is going to change the world, either when you were governor or now, think about the resources it takes to get elected governor of the state of New Jersey. Not even that good of a job. <laughs> um, and or, or, or think about what you're doing now. As, the housing isn't bad. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, or, or think about, you know, being, be, you know, being the, the, the running New Jersey Reentry Corporation. This takes resources. A lawyer like me can any day I want to, can wake up in the morning and say, I see an injustice. And so I'll make a motion. I'll file a lawsuit. I can do that with almost no infrastructure or support. Um, and, and at least and, and, and in an effort to change the world. Now, let's I, I, I have complete understanding of the fact that sometimes court orders are not the best way to change the world, but they often play an incredibly valuable catalytic role. Um, they mobilize other people. And sometimes they really do matter. I mean, yep. when I won same-sex marriage in New Jersey until last year, and yep. for almost nine years, it was that court order yep. pursuant to which you know, LGBT people in New Jersey could marry, um, as opposed to, you know, you know the, but the, and the legislative fight takes resources, it takes lots of votes, it takes getting people who, um, uh, who, who, you know, might be pretty dug in in opposite positions um, to agree with you. I mean, I can go and if I can convince one judge that I'm right, I can get a good court order. And if I, and if that judge doesn't agree with me, I can go to three judges. And if those judges don't agree with me, if it's the state, I go to seven. If it's the feds, I go to nine. But you can, you can just keep fighting. And one person can make such a difference. Um, and I remember when I was, you know, at the Harvard Lake Labor, we would in just represent people who needed representation. And the idea of helping people when they're at their neediest has been a very animating part of what I do and what my wife does. And that's the best was the best part of Harvard is that I met my wife at the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau. Exactly. Um, and you know, she became a great legal services lawyer, now a great professor at Seton Hall. So um, but you know, all of that is really because um, you know, we it's 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 about both changing the world and about serving individual people, sometimes at their moment of greatest, most desperate need, and helping them in a way that is not only legal, but is you know, getting them back on track. I like really take serious this, seriously this idea of being like a counselor at law. The counselor part matters too. Mm -hmm. So in addition to marrying way up and to three extraordinary children, two daughters and a son, you know, when I think at, at some of great successes, I also think about the death penalty um, and a case involving a mutual friend could you just describe the, the give and take, what happened in terms of uh, that particular case and how you eventually secured his freedom? So, um, so I'm not sure which case we're talking about because there really are a number. But so let me talk about um, the death penalty in general. Then I'm going to talk about Anthony DeFrisco. That's um, who I was referring yeah. to. Yeah. So um, to me... Um, the death penalty is everything that's worst about America. Um, it's about the ultimate refusal to forgive, the truly ultimate. I mean, think about it. Um, somebody has done something 
absolutely terrible. And what we're saying is we will never forgive them. We will never let them reform. We will never believe in their redemption. They are not worth saving. So much so that the very thing that they did wrong, that we find so morally repugnant, we're going to do to them. I mean, the hypocrisy of that, the lack of humanity of it has and always been hubris. It, it's 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 it, i mean hubris almost doesn't describe it it's so awful um but but beyond that once we started learning about it and this was my role really in trying to get the death penalty repealed in new jersey was there's just no doubt about the racially disproportionate impact that it had um it was interesting in new jersey because i spent probably 12 years of my life working on what was called proportionality review at that time, which was New Jersey's effort to assess whether yeah. whether the death penalty was being imposed disproportionately on the basis of race. And I will tell you, the ultimate conclusion was that in some ways it wasn't. The race of the defendants ended up not being statistically significant once you crunched a whole lot of numbers, but it became 100% clear that the race of the victim mattered a great deal. If you killed a black person, you were so much less likely to be prosecuted for the death penalty and convicted of it than if you killed a white person. And it, it stood for me for the completely intolerable position that somehow white lives were worth more than black more. lives. It's not something I could live with. And so really working with a lot of other people, including, you know, and mainly my main mentor in life, John Gibbons, um, we were able to, to work to, you know, eventually get the death penalty repealed in New Jersey. Kevin Walsh, who's now our state comptroller, um, was incredibly instrumental in that in that effort. As were many church leaders, in particular, um, and and it was an incredibly rewarding thing to do. Um, but I still do death penalty cases. I argued a death penalty case uh, that was a federal case a few years ago. Um, I um, I still have a death penalty case for a guy who's on death row. Um, even though he's clearly developmentally disabled um, in Alabama. Um, I mean, this is not a problem that's over, and it's not even over in a place like New Jersey, honestly, because we're always one truly horrific murder away from the legislature as a matter of you know political self-aggrandizement, reinstating it. Um, so this is one of those things that we have to be ever vigilant about. But you know, then you have your own cases. And I started working in 1994 in a case on behalf of a guy named Anthony DeFrisco, who was convicted and sentenced to death under the most, under the just most outrageous circumstances, um, including ultimately that he, that he went to trial and on a death, on just a, a you know a, just on a penalty phase. Um, the jury came back uh, hung three to three. That's supposed to mean life. The judge said no, no, no. Try to reach a verdict, which is unlawful. Um, he was convicted. Um, and sentenced to death. Um, I, we appealed that. Um, we then um, showed that his counsel was ineffective, including that they had failed to put in any evidence of his remorse, which we all know is the single most significant factor. And yet his public defenders who had never tried a death penalty case before, one of whom was on his honeymoon as the trial began, another of whom had quit the case and been forced back into it. Um, those, you know, that, that, that you know, he, he had ineffective assistance. We went to the Supreme Court and lost four to three on whether he got ineffective assistance of counsel. And eventually, with a very creative theory, we we got him. Um, we we got his death penalty reversed. And and that case, like so many others, um, has taught me the value 
as a lawyer of tenacity. I mean, there's no such thing as a as a ultimate loss. Um, if you lose, um, there's always other ways to try to skin that cat, as they say, or you can go to the legislature, or you can write an article exposing to the world how unjust it is, um, or you can advocate for candidates who will change, you know that you know that regime, and um, and and each of those techniques has been something that you know we do um, and sometimes it's more like community organizing than legal work sometimes it's more like lobbying than legal work um, sometimes it's just but it's always more about caring than anything else you just can't and not accepting defeat you just have to keep fighting you know, the frisco case is, is an example of that and when he got out on on parole after serving 30 years plus another year or so after the parole board gave him a little hit, which really wasn't bad a year. Um, you know, it was just one of those incredible moments. I mean, a case I worked on from 1994 to 2020, pretty crazy. And Anthony's in a loving, healthy relationship. And in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Pennsylvania. Yep. And yeah, yep. life. having should have a baby any day now. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, what what is the what does Anthony's case tell you? I mean, not only about persistence, um, but what does it tell you about the strengths and the weaknesses of the American criminal justice system? Mm -hmm. um, really important question. Um, Anthony Anthony's case was one that, in the later years of the death penalty, would never have been prosecuted as a death penalty case. He was the victim of a, of a fervor that enveloped the state in the late 1980s when the death penalty was just put on the books. And it was a case that even the prosecutor in the case, who was a great guy, told me, you know, I would never have brought this case today. Um, so so the, the arbitrariness of where you are, who you are, who your prosecutor is, who your defense lawyers are at any given time, um, the arbitrariness of timing, is is was was why he was initially in the position that he was. Um, by the way, it was also the reason why he was eventually vindicated. Um, he, it, in, without mm -hmm. getting into technicalities of it, there was a series of Supreme Court votes that I argued if they'd all taken place at the same time, he would have gotten a life sentence. And the court, again only by four to three, agreed with me on that. Um, and 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 that's why he eventually was was vindicated. Um, so there he got took advantage of sort of that arbitrariness or was that was um, the result. But he, you know, that that and but that arbitrariness, Jim, is really what our just emphasizes to me how deeply flawed our system. <laughs> I mean, our system of justice, for which we congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back every day, is one that we've all come to learn, particularly over the last number of years, and particularly due to the efforts of some of my really good friends like Barry Sheck, is so deeply flawed. I mean, there are people in jail today, lots of them, thousands of them, who are innocent. That's just a fact. And, and whenever we want to say to ourselves, what a great legal system we have, we should remember that it reaches incorrect results both ways all the time. But, it, but a system can legitimately tolerate guilty people being acquitted if just because it 
it shows that there's a safeguard that we're really not going to convict somebody unless we have really good evidence. But the notion that innocent people are convicted is really not what a civilized society should tolerate. And in a lot of ways, we tolerate it more today than we ever have before. We have a Supreme Court that believes in less um, thoroughgoing review of criminal convictions, particularly by federal courts, um, that has put up obstacles to people vindicating their constitutional rights every step of the way. And so it's more important than ever that advocates like me, and there are thousands and thousands of others like me, I'm not that special in that regard, just fight for those rights, you know, every day, every day of the week. So I, I, on the U.S. Supreme Court, has conservatism changed um, from Anton Scalia to the present day? Is, is there, I mean, what I'm, what I'm, I, I just want to interpret it correctly. Is, is there a diminishment of those rights? Is there, it, how has the, not Roberts per se, but the Roberts court, um, how have those rights been impacted and how has conservatism changed on the court? The, um, I think that, it, and you know, there's, there are far more accomplished scholars of the United States Supreme Court than I am. But I do think that the Supreme Court today mirrors some of the tribalism of our polity at large. Um, you know, I have always thought that the great times in American history were times when there were moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans who would sometimes switch sides to create coalitions that did things like as far back as the mid 19th century, passed yep. the Third Amendment, and we all know that, but then replicated that in the mid 1960s with, with the Voting Rights Act. Um, and today, it feels like in Congress that you're there's only Democrats and Republicans, and they don't even agree on the fundamental facts about our world. Um, they, I mean, there's a, I sometimes get the sense that if the Democrats said it was Friday, that the Republicans would go to Fox News and say, do you think it's Friday? And they would say, no, it's, you know, that's not to our advantage to say it's Friday. It's not Friday. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's, the, there, there's, there's just some, some sense of the objective facts that around which society is built. Um, that there's no longer a consensus on that sort of thing. And I think the Supreme Court has devolved into that as well. Um, it, I mean, after the great years of the Warren Court in the late 1960s into the early 1970s, um, which was a court that expanded constitutional rights a great deal, particularly for criminal defendants and particularly in the area of civil rights, the Supreme Court began a movement to the right. But even then, we now look back on those judges, the judges who were appointed by Richard Nixon, um, people like Lewis Powell sure. um, and, 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 and Harry Blackman, who, who now would be liberals on this court um, in a lot of ways. Um, but, but more than that, were believed in consensus, in the value of talking and coming to a decision that, that can satisfy everybody. I don't know whether statistically, there are more five four votes today than there were or six three. Now we have you know the strong conservative majority, um, or or more dissents than there ever were before. I just don't know, um, but it feels to me like a court that is more pitched in its reaction to cases right off the bat, especially important cases 
um, than ever before. I mean, I feel like, you know, this is really, folk, we're real very focused right now on abortion. And, you know, it, it feels like, you know, it's, it's, it's very partisan um, and very, and the, and the battle lines are drawn ex exactly as clearly as the lines between Fox News and, MB and MSNBC. Well, not to, but w within the, the notion of how someone interprets the law of strict mm. construction, uh, how has conservatism um, changed, uh, devoid of the politics, how has it changed philosophically? It, it, the, the way it's changed is to be not devoid of the politics. That is, if you think back for a long time, Supreme Court conservatism was about, let's say, states' rights. Um, or let's say um, it was about it was about um, uh, about be, it being pro prosecution as opposed to pro defense. That was sort of the way it lined up in in numerous ways. Today, in some ways, that's not true, and we see it, for example, with regard to COVID, where suddenly conservatives they're not about states' rights. They, they struck down state initiatives to, for, for I can't remember whether they were vaccine mandates or mask mandates, but that sort of thing, in favor of individual rights. In the old days, it would be the conservatives that would be fighting for states' rights, and the liberals would be saying, would be, would be talking about individual rights. But that was the opposite now. And that's because the politics of the day have, be, have really infused the Supreme Court. And so I think that principle has given way to power. Um, in a lot of ways, in the Supreme Court, and and I think and I think precedent, which was always valued by both liberals and conservatives, is now endangered by a species of judge who's willing to just jettison it in the name of really partisanship. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's really no other, to my mind, you know, no other way to explain it, um, and you know, and and so. What's disturbing to me about the Supreme Court is that in some ways your question, as good as it is, is has become irrelevant. It isn't aside from politics anymore. Bush v. Gore may have been the real first uh, piece of that, but I really feel like right now the Supreme Court just mirrors the divisions in our society, only not in terms of numbers, because the majority of Americans would agree with the three justices, I think. Um, but the six justices who are the conservatives um, can rule the day. So you have a unique situation in our history, not totally unique, but uh, hasn't happened very often, where the Supreme Court is truly out of step with what the nation believes. What will happen as a result of that? Who knows? But it could irreparably damage the court as an institution. And I think that John Roberts understands that, which is why you see him. And he was a very conservative guy. Although a good guy, by the way, I had some cases with him when he was in private practice doing death penalty work on behalf of defendants. But he, but you know, known as a conservative, he understands that the institution, in some ways, is so important that he needs to, um, you know, to to stick up for it. Um, and that means trying to, you know, to trying to be not so partisan. So, off big question: Who's your favorite conservative justice on the Supreme Court historically? Um, my favorite conservative justice on the court. That's a really hard question. 
Um, that's a really hard question because you know it, I'm, I'm not you know I'm not a conservative, so it's hard to find. But who do you? But 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 if you but if you think about somebody like David Souter, who's one of my all-time favorite justices of all time, a Republican appointee of the first George Bush. Yeah. Um, initially, and a very conservative person by disposition, um, and 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 a person who was not by any means kind of a flamethrower or an ideologue on the liberal side, but yeah. somebody who had a deep belief in the institution itself. That to me is the type of that. That's a real conservative, right? That's a conservative mm. who believes in in stare decisis and precedent. It's a it's a it's a it's a conservative who believes in 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 looking to the language of whether it's a statute that's at issue or the constitution um and interpreting it consistent with that um you know a lot of people love scalia because he was so smart and you know such a vibrant writer and like that but but for me there were some issues where he was just brutal i mean he was just terrible on the death penalty um and and there were other issues that was just really hard for you know and second amendment and things like that but i just don't think that what he did was right but i but i do understand the philosophy i mean i think today's conservatives and you know and you, i think you see this a lot um are, are are just you know it's not like the old conservatives who were originalists who looked mm. at the original intent of the constitution now it's all you know I mean, I hate to put it this way, but I think some of them think, you know, what, where would Donald Trump come out on this? And that's which way they go. And, 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 and I, I do think that there's these liberal conservative lines that are more political and less the traditional legal liberal that, that, Yeah, well said. So when, when I think of, of the death penalty, I, always, I also think of um, my friend Calvin Bass, who at the age of 14, charged with felony murder, 38 years later, he gets out. Um, now he's leading our Men Over 30 organization. Um, yep. Just tremendous. So, you know, we've seen a lot about the challenges of young people, young men, their cognitive development, their lack of, of grounded decision-making, making, making bad decisions and paying for those decisions literally over the course of 40 years. Can you talk about James Comer for a second? Let me, let me, so I'd love to, because in a lot of ways for me, that's what replaced the death penalty as my, as one of my criminal law passions, not the only one, but um, so um, there's been this revolution um, um, it started in, Supreme, in the Supreme Court, although they're attempting to roll it back, and it and expanded to lower courts and to state courts, which was an understanding that the juvenile brain is different than the adult brain, and that if you perform an act when you are a juvenile, still defined probably inappropriately from a scientific perspective as below 18, um, then you should be viewed as less culpable than someone who did it as an adult with a fully developed brain. And so um, in, a, in a case called Roper, the Supreme Court said that the, for that reason, the death penalty was unconstitutional, a violation of the cruel and unusual punishment clause for juveniles. Then in a case called Graham, the court said that life sentences without the possibility of parole are unconstitutional for juveniles um, for offenses other than homicide. 
Then in a case called Miller versus Alabama, the Supreme Court said that even for murders, juveniles cannot get life without parole with no possibility of parole unless they are deemed truly incorrigible, un incapable of being rehabilitated in every way, shape or form. It was around the time of Miller that I became involved in cases that addressed these issues. James Comer was the first case um, that I had in the state level on that. Comer had been sentenced, had, had received a sentence that was the equivalent of 86 years for a felony murder. That is a murder where he was involved in a robbery, uh, but had no involvement in the murder. But under our state law, he's deemed responsible for a murder that occurred in the course of the robbery. It's undisputed he didn't pull the trigger. It's not even really disputed that he didn't know a trigger would be pulled. But, you know, we say as a criminal justice system that you're deemed to know that that kind of thing could happen. Um, and so um, he got this incredibly long sentence. We argued that even though that did not technically uh, fall under Miller versus Alabama, because it was not a sentence of life without parole, it was a sentence of 86 years, that it was de facto life without parole. Yep. And in our first trip up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court agreed and said de facto life without parole is going to be treated the same as life without parole. But they said more than that. They also said that for juveniles, there will be cases where sentences are so long that they are unconstitutional because it's unfair. It's it's inconsistent with our evolving standards of decency for cases of juveniles, for juveniles to be punished with lengthy sentences that don't in fact recognize um, the possibility of redemption, the likelihood that they will rehabilitate. And one thing about this line of, of, of cases, Jim, is that these are cases that are extraordinary, not only for what they ultimately held about juveniles, but for the extent to which science was, was becoming a part of our judicial system. Yep. was the idea, right, that science can tell us that the brain develops in this way, and it became accepted. Yep. Anyway, um, we then went back, James now, um, who's an incredible guy who you've met, um, who, you know, is he, he's a terrific musician. He's um, a model inmate. He's an incredibly generous, loving person um, and has so much potential to do so much in the outside world, like a Calvin Bass. Yeah. Um, like a Ronald Long, um, yeah. somebody who, who, you know, who, by the way, is still pleading with the conviction review unit. To, I've spoken to him recently. Yeah. I, I, I've spoken to him like for the past five days, but anyway. yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, so James gets, comes back, he gets sentenced to 30 years. And he got sentenced to 30 years because that was the minimum sentence, the mandatory minimum sentence for murder. And we went back to the Supreme Court again and said, no, you said that long sentences without the possibility of parole are wrong. And we won again. And now the Supreme Court says that, you know, that you at least have to have a chance after 20 years of committed a murder to be considered for parole. Not that you necessarily will get it, but that you have the right to be considered after 20 years. And and so James now is about to be resentenced and um, hopefully he'll get, you know, a sentence that will result in his immediate or freedom. immediate freedom. I'm optimistic that that's the case because he deserves it. We have a we have a, a an open-minded and thoughtful judge, um, and um, I, I I think that you know there too justice will be done. But it's been a process that we're now in our tenth year of working on. I mean, you just think about Larry, about all your time, all your intellectual capital, all the effort, and then as with Anthony, as with 
you know, Calvin Bass, as with, it, it's that he walks out that door. And as you said, he's a loving, competent, healthy, yeah. respectful individual. I'll, so, I'll, tell you, yeah, I'll tell you, Jim, this is, you raise a really important question, which is you know, people like me spend a lot of time fighting for ab abstract legal principles of fairness and justice. Um, and sometimes we, and in and, and cases like Anthony or James, part of the joy is the real human being that's vindicated yeah. as a result. But it's always really important to remember that there's a person. And sometimes Amen. that's actually a tragic aspect of it. And I'll tell you a quick story. It's the worst case of my career. Um, I represented a woman. Uh, it, was, it was a case I took with the ACLU um, in a case in, in which she had a baby with a guy. The guy um, said he was not the father. Um, and so the baby was raised with her last name. Um, about a year later, the baby looked just like the dad. The dad said, wow, that's a cute baby. Went and sued for visitation, um, partial custody, and to have the name changed to his name. And the judge said, well, of course, it's the father's right to have the kid have his last name. And I took the case at that point. We appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court. And, um, and, and, and the Supreme Court ruled that, of course, it's not correct that the father has a right to have the child named after him. Uh, that was on a Friday. And on that next Sunday, the father had his visitation with the kid, killed the kid and himself. And, and, and I, I will never forget you know, how I felt when I learned about that and how it reminded me that sometimes we shouldn't get so caught up in our causes that we forget that there are real people involved and that these cases can have real consequences. You know, I've thought thousands of times about whether there was some sign I should have seen that that kind of thing could happen. And we, there, we really didn't. There was no allegations of domestic violence before. There, was, there had been no incidents with prior visitation. It just was a complete shock. But it does remind us that, you know, when we fight for causes, we also have to remember that we're fighting for people and we have to do what's right for them. I mean, that woman, you know, did something incredible for the legal system. Um, but I'm, I don't know if she, you know, I don't know if she would say that it was worth it. Um, mm. and, and I think it's the kind of thing we have to think about every day when we do the kind of work that we do. And let me just say, it's the kind of thing that you, Jim McGreevy, think about every single day. Um, because I see you in the morning talking to me about how we're going to change the law and, and, and do real criminal justice reform. And in the afternoon, running to Target to buy underwear for guys who need it, um, who have just been released from prison. Um, that balance that you strike, I will say honestly, better than anybody I've ever met in my life, um, is one of the many things that makes you the you know, most extraordinary public servant I've ever met. Oh, Larry, I think you're, you're being, thank you. You're being a bit too generous, but I, I, I do love it though. I love the practical side of it because it just reminds me. And I, I just want to say, Thank you for you um, for being on our board, um, for being the the intellectual father of of reentry and and for me criminal justice reform in the state and working with our state legislators, the governor's office, the attorney general's office. I mean, through all of this, there's the unseen hand of Larry Lustberg, uh, making life more fair, making services more accessible, and. Uh, also, on a personal and professional level, providing incredible guidance, decision, and wisdom um, as, as we broadened 
uh, New Jersey reentry to the 13,000 uh, participants we now serve. And, and imagine how much more effective I would be if, if, the, if the phone calls weren't always between five and six in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and you didn't always take Reverend Flores' side as opposed to mine. Oh, no, that, 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 that shows my good judgment for sure. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, so la last um, last thoughts, sort of his life as this young man, as his lawyer, criminal justice reform, cases before the Supreme Court, understanding the human impact. Um, you know, David Brooks talks about eulogy values. Um, what's the epitaph of, of Larry Lussberg in terms of his service uh, to New Jersey and to the nation, to fairness, to equity, and to criminal justice reform? What do you, what do you want said? I think I've, I haven't thought about it before, and maybe that's a good thing that I'm not quite ready to <laughs> think about that. Um, but, but honestly, what I think I would want said is that he worked really hard and made a start. I think anybody who thinks that we, anybody who thinks that we've done more than make a start is fooling themselves. There's always more work to do. And what I hope, and I think about this a lot, is that the people I've had the chance to work with who are younger than me, who are either starting out or doing tremendous things themselves. The Gibbons Fellows. Yeah, the Gibbons Fellows, just for example, you know, will do great things. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I hope I was able to teach them that. But, but, I, but I, I work really hard every day to try to do the right thing for my clients and for the world. Um, and, um, but, I, but, I, but I recognize that it's only a start and that um, sort of like it takes a village, it just takes time to, 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 to get there. And I'm not sure we'll ever totally get there because there'll always be things to do to make it better. Um, but I, I, I have worked hard and I hope I've made a start. Uh, I think I think of Gandhi, you know, be the change you want to see in Tikkunawam is, is, to, is to repair the breach and to make the world. So I just, um, Larry, thank you. Thank you for this time together. Um, dear friends, but I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, not only the intellectual thinking, but the values and, and your reflection. And it, it, it provides, as you always do, a greater sense of insight and meaning and purpose to what we do to strengthen us, uh, not just for the start. I think you're much further than the start, but for the, the road ahead. Thanks for the journey. Thank you. I mean, I'm, it's hard to imagine having done it without you. Thanks, Larry. Be well. <laughs>